Welcome to another episode of Global U Talks, where college-age entrepreneurs travel the world and interview experts in technology, entrepreneurship, and the kingdom way of life. This is Tyler Young, your host, and today we have Justin Schneider. Justin is the founder of the shoe company Wolf and Shepherd. Please join us as Seth Barnes, the founder of Adventures and Missions, interviews Justin. I hope you enjoy. Okay. Well, today I have just spent some time with our young people talking about pivoting. And we are in a climate a world that is requiring pivots every day, it seems. I told them about just how hard it's been for you. You've been in a market that was a go-go market, and now it's, it's been a struggle. How are you doing now? How are you personally doing? And, you know, and how is the company doing? Yeah, thank you. You know, and I'm, I'm actually pulling up the questions you sent me just now, just so I can have them as reference. Um, but, you know, I personally am doing, doing all right. I'm doing just fine. I think before, before all of this happened, you had mentioned everything has been kind of a go, go, go. And I've had a lot of life changes happen along with career changes. And so there hasn't been any, nothing's been really static in my life. And so the interesting thing is that coming into the corona crisis, actually, as much as there's been a lot of challenges and there has been for everybody in, in my industry, I'm so used to how quickly things change and flop that I think the new, my new like normal state is, is used to things like this happening. Maybe not this crisis per se, but kind of the last four years leading up to this has has actually, I feel like, prepared us pretty well for Something like this, and I have I have good leadership around me now, who understands the circumstances and the situation and has been able to react fast with me. So, if anything, it hasn't been the the crisis today has not been the the greatest kind of personal challenge work wise or personal wise as as much as you know it's it's been kind of the the circumstances on the economy and on people's perspective and thinking has been the most dramatic change. And so, you know, if, if anything, we're, we're reacting quickly to kind of an ever-changing new normal. And our family, I think, having gone through a lot of challenges and changes in the last four or five years, or just, yeah, for the last five years, actually positioned us well to kind of just see this as another kind of hurdle or um, obstacle to, to kind of find your way around. So emotionally, it's got to be difficult, though, because you were on a trajectory to, I mean, we're talking about potentially, you know, a buyout and uh, bigger companies that were interested in, in buying you for quite a premium. And you had built up a, a staff. What were your staff? Was it about 40? Yeah, 43 people. 43 people. And, 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 and your salary... Total salary, I estimated it at like two and a half million. What what was your like, salary for the year? Mine? Well, I mean, I not, guess if not, not you, per, I mean, I'm talking about Wolf and Shepherd. Oh, for the company. Yeah, I was $1.74 million a year um, was how much it was currently. But it probably would have been, we, we had it calculated for the year around two and a half million in salaries. Yeah. Um, and, and then you had to, you had to cut. 33 people? Yeah, we cut out all but seven people at the company. And, and that was an amazing pivot. You made that call and you did it so quickly. And others, you know, in your industry maybe didn't move as quickly. And, but it's life and death. 
Can you walk us through that decision-making process a bit? Yeah, you know, we had, we've always, and this is a point to, uh, and Seth, just tell me how, how much you want me to talk about it, the, the business tactics versus kind of the life lessons versus, yeah. you know. Yeah, um, I appreciate, we're, we're just trying to learn how do we pivot, and I think your story is a great one. Yeah, so I think when we were, you know, the decisions that we made to quickly, you know, cut our, our costs down, you know, start negotiating with our vendors to tie defer payments, get lower, you know, fees, was all a kind of a preemptive um, action based around the fact that having, like, we are so, in my industry, we're predominantly a, a digital business, so we can see our results day to day, hour by hour, and after about three days of, of seeing heavy slumps in sales, you know, we were looking at, even for a small business our size, we were looking at um, burning more than $250,000 or a quarter million dollars in just one week of, of down sales. Wow. Now, never in the history of the world has there been a, a case where in, le in less than a week, you go from, you know, doing, you know, being at 100% of sales down to 5% of sales in, you know, just a matter of, a, of days. And to see that pay stay constant, it, it, it required that regardless, we needed to trim any, any non-necessary costs to the business in order to kind of steward the resources we have, we still have and, and had um, to be able to make, to make movements. I mean, it's like, you can't wait till your, your tank, um, whether it's your heart, your energy or anything, you can't wait till it's a hundred percent depleted before you choose to make a move in the right direction because then you have no energy. Yeah, and, and you, um, so you've got this decision-making process that is uh, really pretty, pretty quick. Yeah, I mean, yes. You're making a decision faster than your peers, and you're alive and they're dead. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, you know, I, the, the hard part is that in, in my position where, you know, you're, you're stewarding tens of millions of dollars and you, you have, you know, nearly uh, 50 people working for you, you're growing quickly. All of everybody's dreams are really big, you know, and, and I think the thing, the challenge in for people like for me in my position is you have a lot of expectations where you, you want to generate a return for your investors. You want to make your employees, employees happy. You want to help them. You're like, I want to become X in my career. And so you're hoping that you can facilitate a, like a, a position for them quickly. And the hard part about this that gets accelerated during a crisis is already everybody's, everybody's expectations around you are growing faster than you can actually deliver in most cases. And so you never actually fulfill the needs of everybody around you. And inevitably, even if you're a perfectionist or you work your, you work your life off, you know, off the cliff, you, you, someone's going to be angry, disappointed, unhappy, or feel like you let them down. And for me, that's something that's been really hard historically. And so crisis like this, when other people in my position or who have, have to make these big decisions are in it, it's a lot easier to stick your head in the ground and say, I'll just pop my head back out in a little bit if I feel the temperature cool. So that, and that's just not an option because it's either if, if you ignore crisis when it's coming at you, you're risking everything. Whereas if you take it head on, at least you can save something. And, and so to me, it was, well, either I, you know, I do what it takes to conserve the to, to keep the company alive or in five or six weeks, or really in this case, it was going to be about two and a half months 
um, in two and a half months, there will be nothing. And the last five, six years of, of dedication that I put into this along with the people along the ride and the resources put, you know, spent to get here would be for nothing. And that I think keeps people, I think that I've seen, I still have another friend who he has a, he has about 80 employees. We do about the same amount of revenue, same size companies, but he's waiting. He's waiting and waiting for his PPP to come in, government bailout money. He's, and, you know, he's like, if I, you know, if we have to go another month, I, I you know, I don't know what I'm going to do because we'll be completely out of money and we don't have enough, you know, debt to draw and from, from banks that we would probably just have to shut down, you know? And I, I think he's like, but when we get there, then we'll let everyone go then we'll stop paying ourselves. Then we'll change our business plan or start figuring something else out or look for more money. And the thing is that all of these things that I just mentioned take time. It takes time to, 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 to build a team. It takes time to find capital. It takes time to initiate a plan. None of those things are, I go to sleep one night thinking I want to make a million dollars or I want to go hire this most talented person in the world. And the next morning, they're just showing up at your door. Opportunities don't happen that way. And they, they take a lot of, it may seem like it happens immediately, even for yourselves, but it's like graduating from high school or finishing a program. You don't really get that certificate till the end. And so if you, you don't just go, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to become a doctor now. And, and then the next morning you've got a telescope and a mask and you're in there like saving the world. No, it's like, okay, most people I know who have become doctors, they have somewhere between six and 12 years of education. And then at the very end, after all of these resources have been spent and this investment in time, do they finally get to practice this thing that they wanted to do? Yeah. So there's just no, there's no, some people it happens faster than others, but that's usually kind of a blessing more than it was planned. So somehow in your life, you learned to, to pivot. You, we, we went over the OODA loop today and how you orient and are you observe, then you orient, then you decide, then you, you assess at the end. And, and you have, have kind of made that a visceral process. I remember, you know, when you're making shoes in Mexico and, and you had to get your first shipment across and there was uh, this terrible thing that happened. Tell that story and maybe relate it to kind of how you've grown in terms of uh, learning to pivot. Yeah, that's a good question. And, and thanks for asking. I, you know, we, so when, when I had first launched Wolf and Shepherd, I, I had done what seemed very challenging at the time, which was launch a website, design a product, sell the product, pre-sell the product. You know, we had, I had pre-sold probably around $80,000 when I was looking to start putting the deposit down. Of, of dress shoes ended up being about 120,000 when the deposit fully went in of, of selling shoes by just picking up the phone and calling people, emailing friends um, and family, asking them to, to make an investment in both me and the product. And I had done kind of something that was, I felt at the time, a pretty dramatic feat. You know, I had in the matter of, you know, a matter of months sold over a hundred thousand dollars of shoes and, but I didn't have the product made and it was already three months late. I was three months late on my promise to our first customers. And I, you know, when, when they were finally about to ship, I had promised everybody, well, I'll overnight them when the shoes are finished. I'm going to overnight them to your doorstep. And I got a call one evening towards the end of the day. And 
it, I heard from the factory manager that the shoes that were shipped via FedEx to the border, and then once they cleared the border, were going to disperse to the individual doorsteps of our first customers that they had while in, while in quarantine, while, while being audited to make sure they were what they said they were shoes, that they had been stored to be kind of move across the border and that a, a, a pallet of dishwashing soap had fallen on all the shoes, damaging the boxes and soaking them all in in uh, dishwashing soap. And so I had these, you know, honey colored cap toes that unfortunately were stained with kind of a halo ring of bubbles across the whole upper of leather that these, all these shoes had been pre-cut and built. And I had, it was about 355 pairs of shoes. And I had just taken a bunch of money that I had not delivered the product on and I had no money left. And at this point I had already spent $50,000 investing and in trying to get this thing going. Um, here I have essentially $120,000 of goods at cost that I was shipping to customers and it's all destroyed. And uh, no insurance, no insurance. The insurance was just an email transaction I had with the manager of the uh, factory stating that their responsibility was to get it through the border, clear the border. And then I would pay for the, the freight essentially to end customer. So they pay for the freight essentially to, to me or the disbursement point. Once it clears the disbursement point, it's off to the customers. And in this case, I said, well, you know, wait a second. Let me, let me just push the pause button on your story and uh, turn to our audience here and say, what would you guys do? So you've got, you've got nothing but ruined shoes, no money and mad customers. What do you do? Anybody got an idea? I mean, I've learned communication with customers is important, so I don't know where it is in that process, but you have to have some sort of communication. So you got you to say to the customers, wait a little longer while I come up with an idea. Anybody got any ideas as to what to do? It's helpful to kind of uh, recognize you're in a pickle. All right, so go ahead, Justin. Yeah, it was, I think the immediate reaction is, well, I don't have a choice. I have to somehow deliver something. I, and we did in fact do that. I, we had, we had been communicating the delays across, I was communicating the delays to create some transparency. You know, I had my, my personal phone number, my personal email address, didn't really have any formalized communication process. I wasn't using a telecom service to, or a voice operating system to process phone calls. They were just coming to my phone, every customer call. So in this case, you're right. The first thing we did was, well, actually the first thing I did is I bought a one-way ticket to Leon, Guanajuato and went to the factory. And then the second thing I did when I got there, well, I went there, Lupita, who was the factory manager, picked me up, took me to the factory, you know, apologized for what happened and said, you know, unfortunately you'll have, we'll have to, you know, buy more leathers and, and remake the shoes. And I said, you know, there's, that's, and by the way, this is like going into a Sunday. So, you know, most people didn't expect, I guess, communication right away anyways, but things were supposed to come on Monday. And, uh, you know, we went to the factory and, you know, it's a small factory. It's a, it's a warehouse that had, I believe, three three locked doors on the left side opening up to, an, you know, a, a factory floor that about 25 workers could work on. And um, she's like, you know, we don't have, you know, we don't have any more leathers. You know, these are the shoes. And she showed me the shoes. There's like soap bubbling up on the shoe. And I said, well, what are our options? She's like, well, we, we just have to, you know, these are destroyed. We can't do anything. And I was like, well, we got to figure something out. And so she's like, 
you know, we came to the conclusion, well, we could take the uppers off the shoes, keep the soles, and then we could re restitch new uppers and put them on. And I was like, well, how long will that take? She said, well, we don't have any leather. You know, we couldn't do that. And she's like, well, I was like, well, do you have any, do you have any extra leather laying around? She's like, not the leather that you order. The leather that you want, we don't have any more of that. We used it on your shoes. You know, it'll take weeks to get more. It'll take a couple of weeks to get more leather. And knowing that, that was not really an option because I already had people at this point who were mostly honestly friends and family like me uh, yeah like seth who had said you know some of them most everybody was like was was patient understanding but the there were people who were not as well who were saying you know give me my shoes you promised these it's already been who knows how long and so there was definitely a pressure that like you know i'd put at that point it was six to eight months of work you know that had gone into getting to this point now i'm of course i'm almost i'm five and a half years in it's a little bit different so there's even more investment. Everything's compounded. But in this case, you know, I ended up pulling on the doors and, you know, you know, the, there was the kind of the last, so there's the first one was the office. The second, you know, sliding metal sliding door was like their main stock room. And then they had a third sliding door where they kept, you know, a storage of, you know, their, their packing materials and supplies for the factory. And I, you know, pulled on the second one, I looked around, you know, and I'm just trying to, I'm just walking, pacing out of frustration. I go to the third one. I'm like, well, what's in here? And she opens and she shows me this storage room. And there's a stack of leathers that are not the same leathers that were used on our shoe, but they were very similar. Um, it's like, they're similar in color. And it's like, well, why don't we use these? Like, oh, well, that's our own stock. We can't use that. It's for our own production. It's like, well, you had promised you would make these shoes. And she's like, yeah, but we ship them. And it's like, well, did you get insurance on the ship? And she said, no, because well, nothing ever happens. No, nothing ever goes wrong, you know? I mean, and, but she did agree that it did not clear customs. We had an agreement via email that it was supposed to clear customs and then it would be my responsibility. And in that case, I said, well, let's use these leathers. She's like we can, I was like, well, how about this? I'll pay you for the leathers after the shoes are shipped and on the next order, we'll, we'll we could tack them onto the price of the next shoes, which of course was a bigger order, but event, unfortunately cost the same price as the, you know, the prior shipment. And so she ended up taking, she ended up taking those leathers and, we called in the team on a, a Sunday and they did their prayer. This was the a Catholic team. group. Who was the team? The team was the, the warehouse, or the factory team. So the people who cut the patterns, who take the raw hide, they create the trim lines, they stitch them together, they last the shoe and then they re-glue them onto um, these. So we, we all worked, we cut around the, cut the, cut the strobal lining of the area right between the sole and the uh, upper. We cut them all off all 355 pair, you know, which ends up being about 710 individual shoes, pulled out all the strobe lining and stitching. And then we rebuilt uppers, relasted them. And three days later, we had the shoe shipped out. It didn't cost me, they, they, what ended up doing is they didn't actually end up costing me anything. At the end of the day, we ended up, so we ended up, well, I'll finish the story here. So we ended up making the shoes. And in a matter of three days, the, the shoes were, recut using this slightly different leather and relasted and reapplied to the shoes and on the way we should continue we still ship them directly to the customers I same second, Justin. I, I just gotta because you're, you're kind of blowing over this like it was an easy thing you decided to get on the plane first of all i mean i think that's where that's one difference between you and a lot of people is you said i gotta go to leon now right yeah right and then Lupita told you, ain't no way, we're done. <laughs> and you That's said, right. and you said, there's no, I have to, this has to work. There has to be a way. 
And she's, how many times did she tell you no? Every single time I responded with a question. Every time you respond with a question, it's like, we, we can't do that. That's not how we do it. It doesn't work that way. You can't just, you can't just make new offers. Yeah, you so know, you have to. Like maybe 10 or 20 times you're asking, well, how about this? And she goes, can't work. Yeah, and, it still and, happens. The problem, and, that, the problem is that this happens every single time. How about, I talked to, before this though, even smaller example though was, I show business plan. Hey, I, you know, I show a sketch to somebody and say, I want to start a shoe company. They're like, well, how are you going to do that? I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to find out how to make shoes and then I'm going to figure out how much it costs to make them. And then I'm going to find somebody who gives me the money or I'm going to do the, find the money or I'll find the money. And you have to keep finding it. You're discovering okay. the whole time. And so, so I just want to push pause button again. You're committing to ambiguity. That's, that's like a key. Like, there's, you can't, you can't like, okay, I've got an algorithm. I'm going to sell the algorithm for $10 million. You're like, I have an idea. It, I don't know how it's going to work. It's completely ambiguous and I'm, I'm going to commit anyway. Right. Right. Which, I, I don't feel like I was committing to ambiguity though. I feel like I had a pretty clear goal. I think the thing was I, maybe all of the steps between A and A and G on the alphabet or whatever, all the other letters were, you know, mysterious. I'd never discovered them before, but I still knew where I was trying to go. I was trying to build a shoe company, trying to build a great company with a really awesome shoe. So like as vague as it sounds, and maybe I should have had a more formalized business plan and you can show what my business plans look like now. You know, it's like, there's a difference. This is how, but this is how it works. I think this is, this is how it works. But this is why it's also so rare. Your ability to say, I'm going to do this. I have a clear picture. I just, I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I'm going to get there. That conviction allowed you to navigate the ambiguity. Yes. It doesn't make it, but that's the thing is when you're in, like, from my perspective, it doesn't feel... It feels like everyone else is being unreasonable. <laughs> and, I, and I think that this is, a, this is a delicate line. Okay, so, you know, speaking of, you know, finding a way, there's always a way. In the most part, there is always a way. Unless you're trying to say like, and even if someone says, well, you know, I can turn water into wine. It's like, well, you know, in most cases, it's like literally speaking, that's very probably challenging to do. But if you really think about how wine is built, made, it's a combination of like fermenting grapes and making mixing water and, you know, like there is water involved. So I guess it's not that far from the truth. I mean, I used to say like, it's impossible to turn water into wine. I use that as a metaphor for when someone says, I want the most comfortable shoe and I want the best looking shoe in the world. It's like, well, you're kind of selling a, a fantasy because that fantasy is something that doesn't exist. Usually something's really beautiful. It's sl slender, lean and hard and stiff. And it like a, you know, like a beautiful stiletto or a dress shoe. And, you know, it's kind of like, it, it's really hard to make that comfortable, but we find you try, you do your best to kind of mix, mix and match, mix and match. And the thing is that everybody you work with, and, and this, this happened with me when I started with a concept, I wanted to manufacture the product in Asia. That's where you can make shoes more efficiently. But I also initially was told I needed to make 20,000 units, you know, MOQ. I was like, well, what's that going to cost me? Well, even at, you know, $28 a, a unit, we're talking about like, you know, 400,000 something dollars. And, you know, I didn't have that kind of money sitting around. I think I had a little more than $15,000 in the bank account. Then I, after some consulting stuff, I had gotten it closer to 50 over the spread of the year. But, you know, all of that capital went right into this business. You know, well, how are you going to pay yourself? It's like, I guess I won't pay myself. You know, I, I guess, you know, I'll live in my office. So it was a 684 square foot, you know, sunroom apartment in Jacksonville Beach. 
you know, well, Justin, you need one point. I had a, a family, a, a family office who was interested in investing our idea who wanted a majority of the business tell me that, you know, I like your idea. I like your kind of gusto, but we think you're going to need over a million. We think you're going to need $1.1 million to test the concept. Well, I can either give everything away for that, or, you know, you find another way. It's like, well, that doesn't sound like the option I want to take. You can, it's an option. There's always options. And you have to try and take the one that has the most amount of integrity to your original plan. And along the way, you figure out what you can and can't do. So you know, this wasn't the first time. I think, again, it was just, here's the thing. It's like just starting. Every single, just starting is the challenging part. And then getting the information, the knowledge to take the next step is another challenge. And then another challenge, they compound. But the hardest one is that first leap. Then once you take that first leap, you kind of already separated yourself from all your peers. You know, you've already um, kind of made this commitment that like, I'm not looking for indicators from everyone else, all my other peers for how I should operate or how I make my decisions. And that doesn't mean being in a kind of class that doesn't mean like shedding your values. It doesn't mean that you have to be a horrible person, a mean person. It doesn't mean any of those things, all things which are certainly are, you know, potholes along the way but those are things that you know you essentially have to overcome and so yeah like coming to lupita and the factory it's just just a more tangible narrative-based version of of facing adversity i mean i still face it today when i go to the factories and we're not producing 355 pairs of shoes we're selling we're we're making in one batch 35,500 pairs of shoes so now we've got a thousand you know you know or sorry a what is that? Yeah, a thousand, hundred times. I don't. I can't do math right now. It's like, well, we're still, we're making a lot more shoes. So what I was making for the duration of a year, we're making for the duration of a quarter. Or actually, I mean, we sell about that many shoes a day. You know, back in March before this all happened, we were selling you know closer to three hundred shoes every single day at three hundred and fifty dollars. You know, so you know we were having days where we were still making hundred a hundred thousand dollars in one day in in just online sales, and that used to take me. I don't know, almost a year to sell when we first started. But the thing is that now I go to a giant factory and I say, well, you know, I'd like to make the shoe resolable or I would like to, I I need a leather that's softer, but retains a a consistent grain. And these kind of questions, you ask the factory and go, oh, you can't do that. We can't do that. Um, Now you can't put foam on top of TPU and adhere it to leather because leathers and synthetics don't bond well. It's like, well, what can we do about it? They're like, I don't know. I was like, what does synthetic bond do? You know, so, and, and part of the thing is, it's not that they don't think it's imp- impossible. It's not that people think it's impossible. It's just that it's hard. It's harder than what they already do all the time. So when you ask a factory who's plenty successful already and can produce the volume you want, in my case, they don't want to try something new because trying something new requires changing the, rejigging the assembly line. It requires training somebody in something new. It means that they're going to have lower yield and there's going to be error rates. It means that they're going to have people quit. It means that they're going to probably expend resources just trying to figure out how you want to do this little tweak and that's going to cost them money. And they, that's a risk for them because they don't know if you're actually going to deliver or buy again. So you say you want to do all of these things and all they hear is problems, money, more time. Why make my life more difficult than I need it to? But then they just do the same thing over and it's just kind of in many cases, because the world is always changing under our feet, in many cases, people, once they get comfortable, don't want change because change is stressful. It's scary. It means doing something new. It means having to put work forward. And what this crisis has done is the corona crisis has forced people out of those shells. And the problem is that people are still saying, it's not possible. I don't want to change. 
we have about 2,000 stores across the country and they're all shut down, we can't just try and become a fully online business now. We've got to, you know, keep those people busy doing the same thing they were doing. It's like, well, repurpose them or have someone who was doing retail. Now they're doing customer service. Like, well, they don't want to do that. And that person's like, well, I'd rather just collect unemployment. And the thing is that most of the world works this way. They don't think long-term. They don't have a vision. They're looking for someone to provide that. And I'm not saying I have the perfect vision, but being in the position I have, I have to at least try. I have to pursue a vision. I have to share something. And, you know, even during this crisis set, you know, we talked about, people have asked me, what's our plan? What's our plan? Well, I mean, my plan has always been to try and solve problems and make it better, but people want something to find. You know what I have to do? I have to open up an Excel or a, a sorry, a, a Word document or a Google, a, a Google, Google papers. And I have to create, put my logo at the top, create it in memo format and say, here's our four step process to the crisis. Conserve, maintain, build and scale. And here's how we're going to transition in those moments. And what I feel like I'm doing is actually just kind of laying out common sense chess moves to, if this happens, if, our, if we run low on money, we will lower costs. If, if revenue starts coming in, we will build back up infrastructure. If consumers stop purchasing X or item A, we will start divesting inventory from item A and reinvesting in item B. But people want to understand your logic and it makes them feel safe for you have, to have certainty in your voice, conviction in an answer. And so now I'm over here and, you know, we, we, we transitioned from having, you know, less than a quarter of runway and burning a quarter million dollars a month or sorry, a quarter million dollars a week to within five days transitioning to cash flowing and operating profitably. Now, not a lot of profits, but for us to go from essentially doing $1.25 million a month in sales to, you know, essentially a run rate that would put us at 35,000 a week. So we're talking about, you know, $140,000 a month in sales from 1.25 to $140,000 in sales. You know, we've made some adjustments and last month we ended up doing, you know, 860,000 in sales. And then this month we'll probably do a little more than half a million and then we'll start going back up. I hope if not, we can operate at a half a million and we'll be fine. Now, the thing about this is that when you have people don't want to make decisions, so they defer to leadership, they defer to someone else to make decisions for them. And then once those people make decisions for them, most of the time, they're not happy with the decision that someone else made for them because they didn't make it themselves. So you, the hardest part, I think, for me in pivoting or change is that you're fighting, you're fighting against what people naturally, people's natural state of what they want to do, what they're comfortable with. And you're telling them not to be comfortable. You're basically saying, stand up, doing, stand, stand up and go, like, or get on your knees and do a plank. It's, it's, your body starts to shake. You feel uncomfortable. I think about, think about personal trainers. People like their personal trainers because of the personal high they get afterwards, but they have someone drilling them and telling them, you know, do it longer. You're not doing it long enough. You, we need to work harder, come in more, work out more intensely. You know, it's like, everyone's it's like, man, why is this guy on my back? I'm paying it. What the heck? You know? And I think that's why most people just kind of tread along in life, hoping that somebody will kind of unravel the path for them. In our case, you know, we've had even this, like, you know, I've, I have to, okay, well, if I don't lay people off, then I bankrupt the company. I might have some happy employees for, you know, so the people who are there, like, hey, I'm getting paid when everybody else is going out of business. But I promise you in six to eight weeks, they'll hate me just the same. And in this case, I have some people who have understood. I've had people curse me out and people tell me I'm a terrible person and I have no moral compass or values. And, you know, you have people challenging you at every step of the road. And I mean, Seth knows me prior to starting this business. It's like, I, I never had anybody say, wow, you're a selfish 
individual who is just out to harm people, you know, and unfortunately you start to hear those things. It's like, I can't think of a single expose of a company, look up away, look up Everlane, look up outdoor voices, look up like any brand that's built a hundred million dollar enterprise in the last decade. And there's going to be a series of people who are hating on them. And there's also going to be, and they're they're people, we're just people, we're imperfect. And you can either kind of get stuck up in that and let that prevent you from moving forward. Or or you can say, am I operating with integrity? Did I do the right thing by someone? And then you have to, um, I think this big thing that allows you to pivot and talking about this category of pivot is you have to be willing to make decisions that other people are not willing to make. And you have to be able to do those knowing that you have sound, sound values and you have a sound kind of, you have a a very clear North star because everyone around you is going to tell you you're wrong. It's like, even the Pharisees were talking about how excited they were to kill Jesus, you know, like the day before he, you know, he died. And it's like, it's like, why, why does everybody hate on leadership? Why does everybody hate on decision-making? It makes them uncomfortable. It's not what they did before. Someone else told them this is how it's done. But if, there's not people who are willing to push against that, then there is no innovation The company, everything kind of eventually crumbles and, and dies. So, you know, I feel like, you know, change is a necessary thing that has to happen for things to grow. And everybody does like growth. People love progress. The irony is that people love, there are people who love working at Wolf and Shepherd and they get addicted or they get high, high on it because we're progressing, we're growing, we're making change, we're, we're building our team, we're selling more products, we, we have more innovation, and we're doing that with half the resources and people with a quarter of the experience. Now, granted, if, they don't, if, if I don't prop them up, they won't prop themselves up in most cases, but the people who do prop themselves up and are self, they're self-energized, they're, they're self-motivated, they're self-driving, those are the people that really thrive both at, at Wolf and Shepherd. And, and will on their own. I mean, frankly, the people I want to hire are all people who can do it themselves. They can go and start a business. Like, that's who I want to hire is the person who thinks, you know, there is a way and I'm going to find it and I'm not going to wait for you to tell me the answer. I, I'm, I'm curious enough to find it myself. And, and that's kind of led to, I think at every stage, I'm, you know, Seth's right. I don't, I'm not self-aware of every pivot we've made. You know, we've made so many changes. We, we hit, we started selling, you know, five shoes a day. We moved across country. We, we, it's like you, you, you outgrow your space. You get a new office. You, your business downsizes, you renegotiate your rents and you get out of them. You know, it's like, but I think being using common sense to react quickly, it allows you to, to thrive when otherwise other people are, you know, really struggling. That's great, Justin. Thanks. There's a lot packed in your answer there. And, and I'm glad that, you know, you are an example to many of doing what it takes to thrive in adversity and uh, your capacity to pivot. You may not even be as aware when you're pivoting because it's just so natural, but you've assimilated this capacity over time and it's, it's something we want to learn from. I have one more question before I let you run and just, just I guess, a brief answer, but you, you mentioned, you know, the Pharisees and Jesus, and you're a follower of Jesus, and I've watched you over your lifetime, you know, uh, follow him, and you, your parents uh, raised you so well in that regard, but you've made it your own faith, and how do you, how do you integrate your faith with your leadership in, in a time of adversity? So, yeah, this is something that I think... And I, in actions I don't do as well 
historically, I'm, I'm being honest, you know, I haven't done it as well as I would like. I think in my heart, you know, my desire is to honor God first and to, to live a life where he'd say, you know, I'm proud of you. You know, I'm, I'm happy with you. And, and part of that's my brokenness and insecurity of, am I doing a good job? And so in my work, you know, I think for me, and I'm giving some, I have to give some pref, I have to preface here a little bit, Seth, you know, in my, in my work, it's, you know, constantly people are, are pointing at your achievements or stating like, you're good at this. You run far in this, congratulations. And that provides its own kind of self-stimulating high. That can detract from, you know, what the actual purpose of all this is. You know, I think that certainly God gears us and builds us in certain ways and that we should look to honor him in everything we do. There's the, uh, when you work in business or basically if you're driving anything forward, there's change, there's pressure and that pressure compounds. And I think from a personal level, what we need to remember is to, I, this is very difficult, but is to remember to, we do need to remember to, to love the pe- people we are around, love ourselves and, and love God. But also I think understand that we're in a position of stewardship and it's like, don't think of one thing we've had to do. I've had to do with this company is stop saying like my company, focus on out, it being our company, even if I own the majority of the stock or if, you know, I'm the primary decision maker is, is realizing this is like a, a resource that, or a platform that I'm asked to steward. One of our values, Seth helped me, helped me with these, was is stewardship. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm more of a facilitator for this. So the more I can separate for myself from this, it's mine, mine, mine. And think of it as like, you know, God's given me a, a platform to operate on and he's given me a task. And, and my job is to, 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 to facilitate the growth of this resource. That's one thing. I think the other thing is when you talk about like, how do you operate in business as a believer? I think one of the things is we've talked about is values. It's like, I think the one thing that stays constant through all of this is, you know, understand it's like our values that we designed in the company, I, I believe are consistent and aligned with, you know, biblical values. And if I can revert, revert to those and if our staff can revert to those, then that's one way of kind of tying in how do we operate? How do we treat people? How do we think? Why are we doing this? But Seth, I don't know if you can feel free to direct me here. I, I think the two areas I see are kind of keeping your values aligned with biblical teaching. And then the second thing is trying to keep a head on your shoulders that um, stayed that, with a position that is, this is not mine. I didn't create this on my own. I just kind of stewarded or I just happened to be in the, oper- in the you know, amazing position to kind of facilitate its growth, but it's not mine. It's God's. God gave this to me. I didn't wake up and I didn't demand it and get it. It's like, I may have wanted it and desired it, but God ultimately is the one who gave it to me. And that keeps you from thinking selfishly about it's all me. It's all me. I don't do that perfectly every day. And fortunately I have people like Seth in my life who remind me of what's important. And, you know, I think, Overall, I think that has created probably the biggest challenge for me. It's funny, like pivots are kind of become natural, a natural process for me. It's more now the, it's the hardest part I think is really kind of staying true to who you are, maintaining your values and and kind of, you know, remembering that there's a bigger picture than whatever it is that you're, you're tasked to do. It's, it's not, it's like, it's not go build this wall just for the sake of building it. It's like you're doing this for a bigger purpose or a bigger cause or to protect. You're, you're building a company to 
provide people with opportunities and to to be a facilitator and to to you know ex- use your platform to kind of emote the values that are you know like-minded with Christ. I, I don't know if that answers it. There's kind of two ways I look at trying to apply my faith is to not lose my faith in the process. But I think there's daily challenges. One of my biggest challenges is finding out how to avoid the potholes and it's that, that come with, you know, being in leadership or having to make decisions. It's for me, it's not, you know, go buy a nice car, something like that. It's like, I could, the irony is like, I could buy probably three Ferraris right now for the amount I spend just on childcare for my kids. And I could pay for all of those and be fine. I could buy a $40,000 watch, you know, or I could just wear it around. I wouldn't have to think about it that much. I mean, I don't make a ton of money. I make enough to be able to buy those things, but, but I, but those would be a poor use of, of resources. And, you know, I, I think that's not the, not the typical things that people think about are not, are not, my temptations. I think to think that this is the only important thing. It's like, as if you're so focused and so driven on seeing something move forward, that can also destroy the purpose on why you're doing it in the first place. So I think one of the things that I'm, I want, I continue to try to do better is spend more time in the word. And it's like, let, let the words filter through you and be a leveling, a source of leveling your heart, leveling your mind so that you're not so wrapped up in kind of things of this world i love it when they say like don't there's two 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 quotes and you know seth will clean these up and find the actual bible verse for us but you know there's you know i i think the first is it's like don't live in this world but live don't don't live in the world but you can you can live of the world but don't live in the world and the other thing is is it in deuteronomy where you talk about it's like you know be like uh be like doves or sheep among wolves, but as shrewd as the viper. I think that the way I see that is, you know, we need to present ourselves with, with love and grace and humility, all things that I struggle with, but we also still need to be shrewd and thoughtful and ensure that it's like, don't F with me. You know, it's like being, being a believer, being a follower of Christ does not mean you lay down in joy and just like, Hey, take everything from me because I'm just a gracious, loving person. It's like, no, I have these things. I'm going to protect them don't screw with me, you know, I, you know, and you have to see past the deceit. You have to be, you have to be five chess moves ahead of everyone around you. So just because you're a believer does not mean that you're meek. It does not mean that you are weak. It does not mean that you are, you know, you are different or worse than anybody else. You you guys probably have peers who are going to become like financial advisors and accountants or like make lots of money or do all these things. And it can make you feel insecure. Like I studied design product design and how to like design products. And I thought, man, I'm kind of like coming, I'm like doing basket weaving of economics. You know, it's like, I'm not going to get a real job with this. And I had friends who were making a lot more money than me at first. You know, were making, you know, they had cooler careers. They were living in bigger cities and, you know, that made me feel inferior. And it drove an element of go and build something. But, you know, that is not... Those, those are feelings of insecurity. Those are not what drive you or should not be the things that drive you. So, you know, I guess, you know, I, I kind of, when I think of, when, what comes to mind when I think of kind of scriptural things is parable of the talents, maximize the talents. It's uh, be shrewd, but still loving. And what was the third one I said, Seth? <laughs> That's okay. Hey, Justin, you did good. And I think... You are in the middle of it. And I love what Teddy Roosevelt said about the man in the arena. 
that's you. You're you're the guy with the, the blood and the sweat and the tears, and and it's hard. And it you got to have moves. You got to pivot. You got to be shrewd. And I I thank you for your vulnerability and honesty and sharing with us what it feels like. And um, how many babies you got? We have three, three babies. Yeah. And uh, and plans for another one? We'll see. I don't know. We'll see. If God gives us one, we haven't exactly, that's probably an area where we haven't been as planned, but we, we pivot, you know, if, you know, if we have more kids, we'll sell more shoes and we'll find a way. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So we, we react. Well, I, that's one thing I would say is, you know, when it comes to don't postpone life, you know, in the pursuit of something else. I have so many friends. I, I will say this, and this is a little bit off subject as, but it's, you know, I have so many friends that are in their early 30s now, late 20s, who more than half, I promise you, is more than half of the people who are looking to have children are struggling to have children because they waited. Mm -hmm. They wanted a family. They postponed it. We'll get married when it's convenient. When I get my job promotion, when I do get that job, when we move to the bigger city and we can buy a house, let's buy the house first. We haven't been able to buy the cars yet, so how can we buy a child? You know, and I think it's like, oh, now we're ready to have one. And then it's three or four miscarriages later before they have a chance. And so... You know, I think we think we can plan and we control things and we don't. And that's why I think the lesson that Seth is telling, telling you guys right now around pivoting is so important. You don't get to choose when you have kids. You don't get to choose when you have success. You know, you can just go and do. And um, if you try to plan out your whole life, then, you know, you, you spent all that time planning. You've never actually walked it. And I think if you walk and react, then that idea of keeping a minimum viable product around your ideas or your pursuits or your passions um, and then constantly pivoting or making adjustments as needed to make it make progress. I um, mean, you do that. You don't just run into an obstacle. You see a blade, you know, you see a corner of a wall in front of you and you just walk straight into it. You, you, your body, you instinctually should look to shift and change and choose a road. And you won't know until you get around the corner where it leads. I'm going to have Haley pray for you. Thank you for taking the time with us. Yeah. Here's Haley. She's going to pray for you. Okay. Father, thank you for the time that Justin was willing to give to us. He's clearly doing a lot, being a husband, a father, leading his employees and leading a business. And you're showing me a lot about leadership. And I pray you continue to teach him. I pray you're his biggest teacher. And I pray that every time he just surrenders just his time and isn't the word, that you'd help that to be even more life-giving and it would level him out even more and, and more than level him out. Like it would put deep, deep roots in him. We know his heart, you know, where he wants to go. He does want to glorify you. And I pray just help remind him where he doesn't have it, increase his capacity where he doesn't have it. And I pray that just when people say different things and challenge his character, that he really does truly learn what identity in you is. He is so loved and he does have a lot to steward. I pray they just continue to help him in that. He doesn't have a lot of pressure in that or expectations from you. He just asks for you to help him do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just please just bless his leadership as you are the good father you are. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you, Lord. Amen. 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 Thank you for listening to another episode of Global U Talks. If you enjoyed this episode or think a friend might enjoy it, go ahead and share it with them. Also, be sure to drop a review or hit the like button on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, or your favorite listening app. It goes a long way to help us out. And if you're interested in reading the transcript, head on over to theglobalu.org talks. 
where you will find the transcript of every episode, as well as the opportunity to join in on the conversation live. You can join our live episodes every Tuesday and Thursday at 9 a.m. Eastern. You'll be able to ask questions, meet the community, and talk with the host. I hope to see you there.